I want to take a moment and, and pray for uh, Wyatt Burbridge as we kind of stand together. Some of you know Wyatt, he shared testimony a couple months ago. He was in a, a motocross accident last week, and uh, I'm going to step off this stage before it falls because it's not quite dialed in. So, I can just use the ground. Um, thanks, Brian. Let's pray for Wyatt. He's in surgery right now, and, uh, and he's, uh, he's had, this is his third surgery, I believe, and uh, he has a pretty messed up arm. Uh, his toe is in bad shape, and they're hoping that he can keep his toe, and so we really need to pray for literal life in his bones. You know, we pray that figuratively, as we, but we need to pray that literally. So we just go before the Lord right now. Lord, we come before you right now. We lift Wyatt up to you. And Lord, we pray right now your hand upon him in this surgery, Lord. We pray for success in the name of Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would come and that you would bring life to his bones. That there would be uh, just the, the living testimony of your goodness would reside upon him right now. That your power of your Holy Spirit would be there in that surgery room. Lord, we pray right now for complete success in the name of Jesus. We come before you, God, and we thank you and we praise you that you have saved his life, that you have rescued him, that he is here with us today, Lord. And we pray for more than just, uh, just a salvaged life. We pray for abundant life, Lord. We pray for a complete healing in his body in every single way. Lord, we lift him up to you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Keep praying for him, and hopefully uh, he'll be out of the hospital. Uh, he'll be out of the hospital in a few days, hopefully. Uh, I got the text message last Sunday night that he was airlifted to Harborview, and that's airlifted to Harborview are never words you want to hear. But they have good care there, so praise the Lord. We're going to receive our, our giving this morning, so if our ushers could come to the front. We're going to give our tithes and our offerings. We believe, that's right, you should be excited about giving a cheerful, there's a cheerful giver right there, that, uh, you know, the, we are called to give to the Lord. I believe that everything I have belong, is the Lord's, that everything I've been given is the Lord's. And so um, when, when I give, I, I don't think, I'm, God, I'm, I'm giving you 10%. I'm like, praise you, Lord, that you're having me keep 90% of everything that you're giving me, and here's your part that you already own. That's my, that's my heart, my mentality. I believe that's what the, the Word of God teaches. So let's just come before the Lord and worship Him with this. Lord, we worship you with our giving today. We, we recognize you are our, our provider. I pray for anyone here this morning that's struggling financially, Lord, and we declare over that life, you are the provider. You will take care. You will guide. You will provide, Lord. And so we give to you today, Lord, out of a grateful heart of worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we're going to get into the word today. We are studying the book of Ezra. This series is called Sacred Ground, and we are building the temple of the Lord. Does anyone know where the temple is now as, as Christians? Where's the temple? Right here. Yes, we are the temple of the Lord. So... So the Israelites were in exile, and they were, they were able to go back to Jerusalem, back to where the temple had been destroyed, and now they are rebuilding it in the book of Ezra, and that's what we've been studying. Well, we, we've got rebuilding to do in our temple. It's a lifelong process. We just tell someone near you, it's a lifelong process. 
All right? You're not done. It's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not done now, but it's always a lifelong process. And so along this process as we build the temple, what we find is that we hit resistance. And we talked about that last week. Resistance. And the enemy came in, and, and he tried to partner with them. And, and if you missed last week's message, you got to go back and hear it, because there is some truth that I think you need to know, that the enemy will try to partner with you and get you to compromise, and that's always the first strategy. If that doesn't work, then it'll just flat out oppose you and discourage you and, and use fear tactics and intimidation and all those things. But we are not going to give in to the enemy, amen? But his strategies are strong. He didn't give up. And what happened... And in, in next is in Ezra 4, verse 6. It says, and in, the, in the reign of Hasarius, the beginning of his reign, they, that's the enemy, wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Do you want me to switch microphones? Yeah? Hey, praise the Lord. Accusation. They wrote an accusation. You ever been accused of something before? Yeah. <laughs> accusation is not fun. I remember the one of the first times in my life I was accused of something. It was in sixth grade. I was probably accused of things way before that, but they were mostly all true. So I don't know if that's an accusation or not. <laughs> Mom, he hit me. Did not. <laughs> I'm in sixth grade, and um, I, had, I had a reputation of talking in class when the teacher was talking. And, uh, and so there was, there was a lot of times in class where we would be having a, a, a great conversation, and the teacher would say, Brad, move chairs, you know, so I'd have to move, right? And... After a while, I got the hint, I'm not supposed to be talking in class. And so I stopped talking in class. But however, after that, when someone was talking in class, guess what happened? Brad, stop talking. Like, I, didn't, I wasn't saying anything. I was paying attention. And I was falsely accused of talking in class. And I got in trouble several times when I wasn't talking. Well, the last laugh is now I talk for a living. So, you know, there you go. But it didn't feel very good to be accused of something when I hadn't done it. I had received my correction, I learned my lesson, and I learned this teacher's not going to tolerate talking to class. So I stopped, but then I kept getting accused over and over and over again. And that feeling of accusation is just, oh, it's just the worst feeling. It's the worst feeling. Why are you blaming me for something? How dare you accuse me? I did nothing wrong. You know that feeling? Oh, yeah, that feeling happens to a lot of us, and, and, and people want to make assumptions, and we get accused of things. Here's the thing. Accusation doesn't need wrongdoing to be effective. It doesn't need you to do something wrong to be effective. Accusation is a very effective tool to frustrate and stifle people. And the Bible tells us that the enemy, that Satan, is an accuser. He is an accuser, and he uses accusation against God's people on a regular basis. 
So anybody here God's people today? Anybody? Good. That's a lot of you. Hopefully most of you. If not, let's pray at the end of this message today. I want to pray with you. The enemy uses accusation against God's people. We're going to dig into that in a moment. But I want us to open our eyes today to see accusation coming so we don't fall prey to it. Because accusation is going to come, and when it catches you off guard is when it really takes you out. But I want you to be able to spot accusation coming. And when the enemy uses accusation against you, that you could say, no, 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 that's, I'm not falling for this. I'm not buying into this. I'm not going to let you take me out with accusation. So let's see what happens in the story today in Ezra chapter 4. And we're going to go through this chapter. We're not going to read every verse because it's a long chapter. But we're going to dig into what happened and how we can apply this to our lives straight from the word today. Starting with Ezra 4 verse 12. Again, if you have our church app, Abundant Life Boarding, there are sermon notes you could follow along with as well. So what happens is they write this letter to the king. And the letter says this. We'll start in verse 12. Be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. I just like pause for a second. When you think Jerusalem, do you think rebellious and wicked? That's not what I think. And I don't think that's what it was, but we'll get into why they said that here in a moment. It says, they are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace, it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor. Therefore we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up from old. That is why the city was laid to waste. We make it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. This sounds like a really good opening legal statement in court. They've made their case They've made this strong case, and they very expertly and carefully appealed to the king. Now, remember, these are the Samaritans. These are the people that were living in the region, in the land, when the Jews came back to rebuild. So they're, the Jews are kind of like stepping on their territory, they feel like, a little bit. They're messing with their stuff, even though the land rightfully belonged to the Jews, and they're riled up here. And so they make this appeal to the king with all these arguments, and the result was that the king believed them. Here's the king's response. I'll just read part of his response in verse 21 and 22. The king says, Therefore make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. So he's going to red tag the work, so to speak. Say, you have to stop building. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king. So what did they do? They appealed to the king's insecurities. They appealed to the king's insecurities, and they actually, rather than making it about what it really was, we're upset that they're building something in the place that we want to be ours. Like, they took my toy kind of a problem. But that's not how they, they did it. 
They didn't come to dad and say, she took my toy, right? They came to dad and said, dad, they're affecting your legacy, right? It, it's, it's a different argument. They're saying, oh, great king, we're riding out of concern for you. It's not us. We're, we're cool. We're great. We're fine. But king, like, we are so loyal to you. We're concerned for you, king. You're going to lose land. King, you're going to lose your tax revenue, and we know how kings like their tax revenue, right? You live in Washington. You understand that. And worst of all, king, you're, I'm sorry. I'm just saying the truth. We pay a lot of taxes, okay? King, you're going to lose your reputation. Now, that's the worst thing a king can lose is the reputation. King, they're going to challenge your authority. But the truth is they were in it for themselves. Their goal was to get God's people out of the way of their plans, to remove them from the ground that they were trying to rebuild on, that they were called to rebuild on. Really what this was was a turf war. This wasn't a king problem. This was a turf war. And the enemy played dirty. The enemy played dirty, just like the enemy always does. And while the Samaritan leaders were we're writing this letter. Interestingly enough, there was things happening in the spiritual places. And I found this to be really fascinating because a lot of times we see things like this in our life. We go through hardship or we go through accusation and, and we, we focus on the physical problem. And the physical problem, right, what was happening was this letter to the king that was attempting to stop the work. But while this was happening, there was a prophet in the region and his name was Zechariah. Zechariah writes in Zechariah 3, verse 1, he has a vision from the Lord about this letter, actually. He has a vision from the Lord about this, about this accusation. And it says in Zechariah 3, 1, it says, Then he, the Lord, showed me Joshua, the high priest. Now remember, Joshua was one of the leaders. Okay, So when we go back, just in case you weren't here, the exiles went back, and they went with Zerubbabel, who was the governor leader. They went with Joshua, who was the high priest. And then they had the elders that were with them as well, and they were leading this whole thing. But it says in Zechariah 3.1, Then the Lord showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan at his right hand to accuse him. See, this wasn't just a letter. This was a spiritual attack on God's plan. It was a spiritual attack on what the Lord was doing among his people. And the enemy is accusing some of you today in your own life. You, it may not come through other people, but it may come to your mind. It may come to your soul where you're feeling accused. You are feeling like there are things being heaped upon you that are questioning your intentions or your motives. Or maybe you're being accused right now in real life, in real time. And I want to expose that accusation so you can see the truth. Because God wants you to keep building your life in the face of accusation. He wants you to keep building the spiritual things in the face of accusation when it seems as though you feel like, I just don't deserve to build. I don't have what it takes to build. I'm not qualified to build. Whatever it is, God wants you to keep building in the face of accusation. So what does accusation look like in our lives? What does accusation look like? And I'm going to give you three things that we see right from the text here. And the first is this. Accusation mixes truth and lies together so that you can't see 
the line between them. It mixes truth and lies. It's not usually just straight up lies. There's usually just this grain of truth. In this letter to the king, the opposition wrote a careful combination of truth and lies. There were some truths. One of the truths was that they were actually building something. They were building. They were supposed to be building. The truth was this. Israel did have some past rebellion. And what we find is the king went and looked in the records and went, oh yeah, Israel was rebellious at some times. You know what got Israel completely removed from the land and destroyed was that they were rebellious, first of all, to the Lord. And it, it, was, their, it was their downfall. And so there was wickedness in Israel's past. The lot, the, the, so there was truth in this. They really were building, and there really was a past. But the lie was that, well, they won't pay tribute. They, they, that was, they just made that up. The Israelites never went with an intention that they weren't going to honor the king. They, they, they were living in a land. And they even fast forward all the way to the time of Jesus, where the Jews were living in a, in a region in Jesus' time that was controlled by Rome, Right? And so, uh, you, you remember, they, they asked Jesus, do you pay taxes to Caesar and to the Lord? He says, give to Caesar what Caesar's and the Lord what is the Lord's, right? And so, the Jews, even all the way fast forward to Jesus' time, they were living under a government system of the world, the Roman Empire, and they paid tribute. They continued to pay their taxes. They continued to be good citizens. And so, this is really just a made-up fabrication that they would not pay tribute. The another, another lie was that they were going to do damage to the king. That they were going to somehow hurt the king and his reputation. Not true. The lie was they were, going, they were doing this as an act to dishonor the king. Oh, king, they're doing this to dishonor you. They're building this thing. They're rebuilding the temple because they want to dishonor you. But the truth was, if you remember, building the temple actually started with a proclamation from the king. See, this was a different king now. The first king who sent him there, he was dead and he was gone. This was a different king. But they left out the fact that the Jews were actually sent there on assignment from King Cyrus that said, I want you to go and I want you to rebuild that temple that was destroyed. And so he sent them. So there's all these lies that are mixed in with just a few truths. And what happens is the enemy uses deceit to blur the lines between truth and lies. He will use deceit to blur the lines between truth and lies. And it happens in our lives and in our hearts. It happens in arguments with people that we love, in relationships that we have, that the, the, the lines start to get blurred where we're like, I don't even know what the truth is anymore. I'm sure some of you have been in an argument where at some point you're like, I don't remember why we're fighting anymore, right? Everything just gets blurry after a while. And all of this comes, and, and you don't even know what ground you're standing upon. But if you look at the very first sin in the Bible, the very first sin, Adam and Eve, the very first sin, here's what happens. The, the enemy goes to tempt Eve, and you know what happens? She resists. She says, no, no, we can't do that. But then the enemy calls into question what God said. Now, now here's the thing. God, God didn't really say that, right? Like, he didn't mean it just like that. And he begins to mix truth and lies together. Well, sure, God said, don't do this. But the reason he said that is because of this. And the, it begins to, the deceit begins to blur the truth. And he says, 
oh, Eve, you won't die. You're not going to die. Surely you won't die. Actually, your eyes are going to be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, there was truth and there was lies. The truth was her eyes would be opened. That wasn't a lie from the enemy. Her eyes would be opened, and she would see good and evil. But the lie was that she would not die. Now, even then, that was partially true because she wouldn't die on the spot. But what happened is that sin would lead to death. And the, the perfect plan of God for him to commune with them in the garden would be gone, and all of that would die, but it would take time. And so you see even the very first sin, this deceit that mixes truth and lies together to confuse God's people. It's just enough truth to go, maybe, maybe, I, maybe that's right. Maybe I should believe that. See, Jesus speaking about the devil says this in John 8, 44, the second half of that verse. He says this, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He is the liar and the father of lies. I, I find it interesting that the enemy will come to God's people, and one of the things he always does is he begins to use deceit to get you to question your identity and who you are in Christ. And he begins to point to your problems and those types of things. But his own identity is this. His own character is this. He's a liar and the father of lies. He's the originator. And he mixes enough truth in to set the hook but everything behind it is lies has anyone ever been fishing before you've been fishing you've been fishing with worms before anyone ever done that you ever taken your kids fishing with worms and they're like dad i don't want to touch the worm you got to do the worm so when you have little kids and you go fishing you don't fish you just bait hooks anyone ever experienced that before right and they throw it in and then they wind it up and then they tangle the line and then you bring it back in, and then you give them your fishing pole, and you put a worm on it, and then they fish, and then you untangle their line, and you're like, here you go, and then they give you back your line all tangled up, and it just, the process repeats. But with the worm, you've got this worm on the, the hook, and, and I remember, like, trying, when I would bait this hook, what he tried to do is he tried to, this, this grosses you out, I'm sorry, but it's a worm. You, gotta, you thread the worm on there so that it completely covers the hook. So you don't see the hook. You, you get the worm all threaded on there, and it's dangling, and it's wiggling, and you don't see the hook. You just see the worm. And so a fish swims by, and the, the fish sees the truth, and the truth is there's food to eat, right? And that is the truth. There is a worm there, and the worm is there, and it is good food, but you know what's behind the worm? Deception. What's behind the worm? The hook, right? So behind that worm is the deception of the hook. And when they go to get the food, which is the truth, it's really there, they hit the hook. And they get deceived, and then they get caught. And then you bring them in, and then you have a fish fry, right? That's how that works. Now, when the devil speaks the truth, here's what you need to know. There's always a hook behind it. See, the devil speaks the truth like a worm on a fish hook, and it looks like it's true, and it looks like it's good, but there is a truth hidden, there is a hook hidden behind it, and that's what accusation does. And in this case, the letter to the king, they caught his attention with the truth, and then they hooked him with lies. 
they caught his attention with the truth. Oh, these were bad people. I mean, they, they're, they're, they're building something. Truth. And then they hooked him with the lies. King, they're going to ruin you. King, they're not going to pay tribute to you. King, it's going to be your downfall. Lies. And that's how the enemy accuses. He blurs those lines and mixes truth and lies. The second thing that accusation looks like is this. He points to the past. The enemy wants to point to the past when accusing you in your life. Notice they told the king, look at their past and you'll find problems. They were rebellious and they were hurtful to kings. And here's the thing, it was not untrue. Was it exaggerating? Oh yeah, it was exaggerating. But it wasn't a lie. It wasn't being made up. And the enemy will dredge up your past and use it as an accusation against you. He will dredge up your past. The enemy actually will point to your past to steal your present. He will point to your past, the wrongs you have done, the mistakes that you have made, and he will point to your past as an accusation to disqualify you from what God's calling you to do today. And boy, I wish I could say it never works. But it so often works. When I talk to Christians, when I talk to people, when I've had, I've had so many conversations with Christians that have fallen to the accusation that says, because of my past, I'm disqualified. That line of thinking is contrary to the gospel. That it is by grace that you have been saved, not by your works, but by his work, by what he has done. And, and people will say, I just can't. I can't do what God's called me to do. I don't have what it takes if you knew my history. I don't know your history, but God knows your history. But there is something greater than your history, and that's his story, spelled the same way. And his story is that he came and that he died for your history to bring you into the present. He has qualified you. And the accuser will prey on your past failures. But the truth is this, when you are in Christ, Galatians 2.20 tells us this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The enemy can point to my past all he wants. He can point to my past all he wants, but the truth is, that's no longer who I am. That's not who I am anymore. That, that old me has been crucified with Christ. If you have things in your life and you are allowing those things to keep you from stepping forward, if you are allowing those things from keeping you from walking fully in what God has called you to, fully in the identity that Jesus has for you, if it's keeping you, if you are disqualifying yourself, you need to know this truth. That old person has been crucified with Christ. It's not you who live, it's Christ in you. And we've got to start living that way. It is Christ who lives in me. I am a new creation. I have been made new. And when we look at this story in Ezra chapter 4, the truth is this. These returning exiles, they were not the people of the past. They were not their ancestors. They were not the rebellious and wicked city. That's not who they were. They came to this land with a renewed commitment to be a people of holiness who served the Lord rightly. That's how they came. And here they are in this letter saying, well, you know, their grandparents and their great-grandparents and their parents, they were evil and wicked people. 
But these people who came, they weren't. They came with this renewed sense. When they went to rebuild Jerusalem, what did they start with? We looked back a few weeks ago. They started with the altar. Why? They started with the altar because they wanted to get right with God is the very first thing that they did. They wanted to get before the Lord and say, God, we want forgiveness of our sins. God, we want to worship you, God. We want to be right with you. We want to be holy unto you. That's who they were. And yet the enemy's saying, well, you know, their lineage says this. You know, this is who they really are. But it was a lie. They came as captives set free. That's who they came as. And while the past was true, it was not true of the present. And when the enemy accuses you, I want you to remember this, that while the past may be true, it doesn't have to be true of the present. Now, if it is true of the present, you can do the same thing. You can repent and you say, God, I want this gone from my life and I'm going to move forward and you're going to get help and you're going to get accountability and whatever it is. But the enemy will point to the past to accuse you of your present. You've got to see through that game. You've got to see through that lie. Finally, we see that the enemy does this in the letter. They question their motives. The enemy questions motives. It says, if this city is rebuilt, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll. Again, not true. There's no indication that the exiles had a plan to usurp the king's authority. Remember, that's the opposite was true. They came on behalf of the king. See, motive's an issue of the heart. You can't see someone's motive. You can't see someone's motive. If you've ever had a disagreement with someone, what do we do? We assume the motive. But the truth is, you can't see a motive because the motive's in the heart. You can't see someone else's motivation. You can't see why they're doing what they're doing necessarily. And this, this motive is an issue of the heart. And when there's accusation against motive, it calls into question the intentions of someone. Here's what I need you to know. The enemy can't see what's happening in your heart. You know that your God is omnipresent, all-powerful. He is all-knowing. All the enemy is not. The enemy is not all-knowing. The enemy doesn't know your motive. He doesn't know your motive. Now, when you sin and, he's in, and your behavior is on display, oh, yeah, that's seen. Like, everyone can see that, right? But he can't see your motive. He can't see what's going on in the heart. And these, this opposition to these Jews, they couldn't see the motive. It wasn't something that you could see. It was something that was lied about. But the enemy will twist that narrative to his advantage, and he will call into question the purpose behind your actions. You say, oh, I just want to worship the Lord. I'm going to just join the worship team because I want, to, I want to serve the Lord with the gift that he's given me. And the enemy will say, oh, you just want to be a star. You just want everyone to notice you. And you're like, oh, no. And then you have to stop and go, wait, that's not my motive. <laughs> In fact, I hope that I, they can't hear me, actually. <laughs> First time I sing. But the enemy will begin to call that question, oh, you're just doing this because of that. Look what he does with cultural issues and Christians. See, if, if we as Christians take a stand for God's view of sex and marriage, which I think we should. Do you think we should? I think we should take a stand for God's view of sex 
sexuality. We should take God's view of marriage. We should hold fast to the word of God and not deviate from it. But the enemy wants to question your motive. And when the enemy questions your motive, they question your heart. So what does culture say that you are? A bigot. You're hateful. You're spiteful. You're phobic. Which, by the way, that's all so strange to me because that means afraid of. Afraid of. You hear these words like homophobic or transphobic, right? I, I think that every human that's ever lived on this face of the earth deserves love because the Father loves, right? Someone who is walking in confusion with their sexuality, the, the word transphobic is so strange to me because that means I'm afraid of them somehow. I, I, I have a fear. That's a strange, I don't know where culture came up with this term. But what that does is it questions the motives of my heart. And it says I'm afraid, I'm hateful, I'm spiteful. But the truth is, is that I mourn because I see the heart of the Father and I see brokenness and I see a society and a generation that is confused. And the enemy wants to accuse you by questioning your motive. And you can't fall into that trap and you can't back down because the truth is that God can work through you to bring truth to someone who is hurting and broken and lost and confused. It happens in other issues. I preached in January for Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. We need to be standing for protecting life in the womb because it's the heart of God. Children are at the very heart of God. But the enemy wants to accuse my motive and say, you know what, you're anti-freedom. You're anti-women. Questioning motives, accusation. And I see an all-out assault on the church today, and it's using this strategy of accusation against God's people, questioning motives. And the enemy wants to take the church down by painting the church in a light that speaks to motive that speaks to the reason why we stand against these things. And they say the opposite of what's actually true. And we can't fight against it, really. We can't defend against it. Why? Because they can say whatever they want, and people will believe them that that's really our motives, right? And all you can do is stand right before God and continue to speak the truth in love and say, no, no, no. This is my motive. This is my purpose. I want to stand for what is right. I want to stand to protect the generation. I want to stand to protect the innocent. That's my motive. And it's nothing but that. And we've got to be careful not to fall into the trap of accusation because what happens is when we fall into that trap of accusation that questions motives is what happens is God's people shrink back and we let the world just have its way. And we let culture just grow and fester because we don't want to get mixed in with this. We don't want them to think that we're this kind of people. And the truth is, if you don't want them to think you're this kind of people, then speak the truth in love and speak out the kind of person that you are. And let your motive be known. Get what's in your heart on the outside and say the truth. Because the enemy wants to twist that narrative and accuse you of impure motives. Because what happens is when you question motives, 
It places a wedge in relationships. It places a wedge in relationships. What's the enemy doing with these issues in our culture in the church right now? The goal is let's place a wedge between those who are lost and those who have life so that those who are lost cannot find life. There's a wedge there. You can see it. You can almost feel it. There is a wedge there. And when these things happen, relationships are destroyed. Surely the enemies of these Israelites wanted to deteriorate any relationship that they had with the king. Any relationship. After all, the very reason it started was favor with the king. So these people have favor with the king. Obviously, let's make sure we destroy and put a wedge between any relationship they might have with the king so that they can't have their way. And the enemy will do the same thing. He'll do it in your marriage. He'll start getting you to question motives. Well, I don't know. I mean, she really just doesn't seem to care about that. Or he doesn't really want to try. Or a wedge. And there's a wedge there. We question those motives. You start making assumptions about the heart and the reasons. A wedge. And it gets placed there in your lives and in your relationships. And then that leads to further accusations. And that leads to a bigger mess and a bigger mess and a bigger mess. And that's how the enemy uses accusation to thwart us from fulfilling God's purposes. He will mix the truth and the lies. He will point to your past. He will question your motives. And the chapter ends with this decree from the king. I'll just finish off this last, this last little part here in verse 24. He tells them to go ahead and just shut this thing down by force and power. And he says, then the work, this is the narrative here, the work on the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem stopped. It stopped. It ceased until the second year of Darius, the king of Persia. We'll get into the, that next week a little bit more, but it's good 15 plus years. It just stopped. It stopped. It completely stopped. The enemy came in with accusation and shut them down. You remember, he used opposition. He tried to partner, didn't work. Tried to discourage, didn't work. Tried to oppose, intimidate, didn't work. Used accusation, oh, it worked. Shut them down. But here's the thing you need to know about this victory, because I think it's important for us to know this. The victory was just a delay, what God was doing. And sometimes, you know, that's enough for the enemy, just to slow it down, just to delay it. Because delay, a lot of times what happens when things get delayed enough, what do we do naturally as humans? Oh, just give up. I guess it's not going to work out. And we just delay it. We'll just delay the work. He didn't have to defeat it. He just had to delay it. I think the enemy knew he couldn't really stop the work. And I think these people that were fighting against the Israelites, they knew they couldn't really stop it. All they needed was victory and delaying it. And some of you in your life today have been delaying and breaking ground for far too long. There are things in your life God's calling you to dig into some things. God's calling you to work through some things. And the enemy is delaying that work by lobbying accusations against you. And in the process of filling all these accusations, you've laid your shovel down. And you've said, I guess it's just not the time. It's not the season. Friends, these accusations are going to come. But here's what I need you to know. And praise the Lord, there will be a day when the enemy is defeated. It says in Revelation 12:10, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power 
and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. There will be a day when Jesus comes back and he will throw down the accuser. And his voice will be silenced. But until that day comes, open your eyes, open your ears. Don't buy into the scheming ways of the enemy. Don't let accusations stop you from doing what God's called you to do. Step into your authority. Step into Christ. And you throw the accuser down right now in your situation, in your life. Say, I won't stand for it. I'm not buying into it. I'm not going to give in to this. I'm not going to keep questioning the motives of this person that I love. I'm not going to allow this wedge to stay here. I'm not going to allow the enemy to use my past to disqualify me. God wants to silence the accuser in your life. He wants to silence the accuser. And I want to pray over you today. Would you stand with me as we close? Would you just close your eyes before the Lord as we pray? We come before the Lord. If this message has resonated in your heart and you feel like, man, I have got accusation happening either in my life right now in practical ways or the enemy is accusing me, pointing to my past and just mixing truth and lies and questioning motives and, and man, I am getting just hit by the accuser right now. Would you just lift your hand up before the Lord, lift your hands up before the Lord in just an act of surrender to say, God, I need you in this place. God, I need you in this place. God, we come before you, God. God, you see our hands, you see our hearts, you see our motives, and we stand right now together as your people. And we say the accuser's voice will be silenced in the name of Jesus. We pray right now in Jesus' name, God, you throw him down. You throw him down. No more lies. No more pointing to the past. We don't buy into the garbage that our past defines our present. But you define our present. Your work was enough. And we come before you now. And I pray right now for anyone who is just gripped, gripped in fear and gripped and stuck in, in bondage right now because of accusation that's come against them. Accusation by the enemy really is where it's sourced from, Lord. We pray that you would silence that, shut that down in the name of Jesus. And I pray you speak truth right now in Jesus' name. Truth right now. You are more than enough in the name of Jesus. So I speak truth right now. It's not over. The Lord would declare it is not over. This relationship, it's not over. This, this thing that you're, you're wrestling with right now, Put it into the hands of the Lord. He's going to take it farther than you ever thought you could. Truth right now, I pray in the name of Jesus. Truth. You have not been disqualified, the Lord would say. You have not been disqualified. I believe there's someone here the Lord wants to say to you, I want you to wake up every morning for the next month, and the first thing I want you to do is to say, Lord, I lay down my past every day for a month. Lord, I lay my past down. That's not who I will be. To remind yourself. I believe there's someone here, the Lord wants you to remind yourself every day this month. My past is not who I will be, is not who I am. 
He wants to set you free from that mindset. He wants to set you free from those past mindsets, those past ways of doing things. He wants to bring you freedom. And the accuser doesn't have a grip. We will stand strong as God's people in truth in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. We pray right now, truth and love and power from on high. Lord, that you would just come and fall by the power of your Holy Spirit and that you would wash away any accusation, any false beliefs, Lord. I pray right now against false beliefs about who you are, God. God, someone needs to hear right now, God's not testing you. God's not tempting you. God's not trying to teach you a lesson. Someone needs to hear that right now. You've said those very words this week. He wants to love you, and he wants to restore you, and he wants to bring you to higher places. That is the heart of the Father. We cast down any false beliefs right now in Jesus' name, and we hold to the truth of who you are. Give us strength, Lord God, to stand strong in the face of accusation in Jesus' mighty name. If you'd like prayer this morning, we have some of our guys up here that would love to pray with you and partner with you. Let's, let's close and worship the Lord together this morning. Pastor Mike.